Good morning. Our scripture reading from this morning is from the book of Amos, starting in chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find this on page 716 and 717. And I'll be reading in several places this morning, from chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And then I'm going to pick it up and skip to chapter 2, verse 6, and read all the way through chapter 3, verse 2. Lots of scripture this morning. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Starting in chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go in to the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets, and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place, as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Colton. Man, it is good to be here in this new series on the Modern Prophets, and we're we're diving in this morning, boy. Jonah was kind of like a warm-up, right? We just kind of warmed you up with a really delightful narrative, uh, just displaying the grace and mercy of God, and here we kind of save the punch to the gut here for a, 
for, for week number two. So if you're still hanging in um, and you've never heard a sermon series through the Minor Prophets, well, you are in the right place this morning because it is going to be a great series. I think eye-opening, challenging, encouraging uh, in so many different ways. And I think we're going to learn a ton. I have been learning so much digging into this series here. And uh, if you want to check out some of my notes, I posted them on Slack. Uh, I think they turn up like 60 pages of research and development on this wonderful topic. So if you're missing some of the details as we're doing a little high view of this book, uh, there, there's lots of details to dig into. We've got nine chapters this morning. So we're going to do it all this morning. So strap on your seatbelts. We're, we're going. We're going. All right. So let me give you uh, just a quick overview here. I'm going to dispense with all the pleasantries and just, just jump right in here, right? We're starting this new series, um, as you see, uh, The Minor Prophets, God's Passion for Justice and Mercy in the Public Square, and we're working our way chronologically through the prophets. So if you're wondering, why aren't we following the biblical order? We're, we're tracing these out chronologically. Amos is next after the prophet Jonah, he was a contemporary of the prophet Jonah. Uh, in verse 1, we learn that he was a shepherd or a herdsman of Tekoa, a town 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So I think I've got a map if you want to kind of locate where, oh, there it is. It's super tiny. You probably can't even read it. But um, you know, we have a map here of the divided kingdom of Israel. About 150 years previously, the kingdom of Israel had split into two, northern kingdom uh, of Israel in the north, the southern kingdom of Judah in the south. And so Amos is coming from the south. He's crossing over into the northern kingdom to give a word of the Lord. And we learn um, also a little bit about his background. In chapter 7, 14, Amos tells us, I was not a prophet or a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. So this guy doesn't have a legacy. He doesn't have a background. His dad wasn't a pastor, right? He wasn't a priest. Um, he was not part of the establishment of religion. But God called this man grabbed him and said, you're going to be my messenger to the people of Israel. Amos describes in vivid language what it was like to receive God's word. Amos 3, uh, 7 through 8, for the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? And so Amos, like it or not, is going to go deliver the word of the Lord, the lion has roared, and then he gets to go and deliver that intense message to those in northern Israel. And, and Amos wants us to understand that prophecy is nothing short of God's word. When God speaks, we need to pay careful attention, right? Amos was called by God to go across into the northern kingdom as we see on the map, which had broken off from the southern kingdom um, over 100 years before. Under the reign of Jeroboam II, it was prospering materially, uh, but it was spiritually impoverished, sexually immoral, and socially unjust. All those things we can see already just in the opening oracle. Where the book of Jonah focused on God's extravagant mercy, the book of Amos uh, highlights God's passion for justice and righteousness. The book of Amos contains selections from his oracles, his sermons, his visions uh, collected throughout his ministry and later compiled in the book that bears his name. So if you're having trouble following along with the flow of Amos, it is a collection, a compilation of all of his work, all kind of condensed into one really dense material. And so I'm going to try and give us a flyby tour of it, but if you're just reading straight through it, you might find yourself getting lost at various places.
places as things skip around. There aren't different like little headings to let you know when one sermon ends and another begins, when one vision begins, another ends. It's a, it is uh, you know, confused commentators for uh, as many years as they have been studying this wonderful book. Uh, but the bottom line here is that Amos is called to bring God's message, and it's a message we need to hear today. And so I want to give you the big idea for this morning as we're starting out. Amos warns God's people that judgment is becoming because of their idolatry, immorality, and injustice. And he calls for repentance both vertically and horizontally and offers hope that David's dynasty will one day be Restored. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but I've got nine chapters of content that I'm trying to deal with. So I kind of snuck three big ideas probably into my one big idea because there's a lot of content uh, going on here. And I hope as I unpack it this morning, it'll begin to make sense and begin to come together for you. Um, for my outline this morning, uh, and this is going to kind of unpack the big idea for us, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the warning of impending judgment, right? We've, we've read that already in this opening, oracles of judgment. We're going to see, second, the call to repentance, right? this call to repentance with vertically and horizontally. And finally, the book closes, which is the glimpse just a glimpse of hope, of redemption and restoration. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would share God's passion for justice and righteousness in the public square, right? That is the burning heart, I think, of the book of Amos, that we would share God's passion for justice and righteousness. So let's pray that God might meet us as we dig into this uh, fascinating prophetic book uh, this morning and see what we can learn for our own hearts and lives. And so, Father, we don't naturally like uh, messages of judgment. Uh, we don't like to be called out. We don't like to be warned um, that you are not happy with the sin in our lives. Uh, we don't like to be called to repentance, but we know that we need it. So would you convict us this morning where we need conviction? Would you inspire us where we need to catch a vision for your justice and righteousness? And we walk away with hope, God, of your everlasting kingdom and uh, a reign that will never end. And so we come this morning asking that you'd meet us by the power of your Holy Spirit. You would speak to your people. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start looking here at this warning of impending judgment, right? Chapters 1 and 2 have a brief introduction to our author in verses 1 through 2. Then there are seven oracles of judgment against the nations surrounding Israel. And you can thank me for not reading through all of the oracles of judgment against all of the nations because there are a, there's a lot of judgment going on. But what I want you to imagine here, as Israel is hearing these oracles of judgment, we didn't read them, but all of the nations around Israel are getting called out. And so I have like a little bit of a map up here, I think from the Bible Project, that's phenomenal. And so as you're looking, he's calling out Tyre and Damascus and Ammon and Moab and Edom and Judah and Gaza and all of the nations surrounding Israel. Um, the prophet is coming and you could just imagine, right, the people of Israel cheering. Yeah, stick it to Damascus. Those guys are full of violence and injustice. Edom, you know, the violence they perpetrated against us, the ways they've attacked us. And you could just hear Israel cheering and cheering as Israel's enemies, you know, are being denounced, right? Their end is going to come. And you could just imagine the surprise of God's people when Amos doesn't stop with the seven nations surrounding Israel. In fact, at the middle, in the bullseye, as it were, Amos takes aim at Israel itself in the by far largest oracle 
God takes aim at God's people itself. Um, and what does he accuse Israel of doing in these opening oracles? First, they're accused of gross injustice, right? We read this in 2 uh, verse 6. Right? They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. They don't care about anybody but themselves. Right? They are more than happy to exploit the poor, uh, to get whatever they can out of them. They're willing to sell the poor into debt, slavery, even though they were slaves in Israel themselves and should know better. Um, this is the kind of thing that's happening amongst God's people himself. And Amos is just scandalized by the fact that this is happening among God's people. Second, they are accused of shocking sexual immorality that, that we don't want to talk about because there are younger kids in the room, right? This is happening amongst God's people in clear violation of God's law. In Leviticus 18, that gives very careful descriptions for why Israel should look different when it comes to sexuality. God's people have a distinctive view, a distinctive vision for what flourishing looks like in sexuality. And Israel has abandoned it. They have walked away from it. Third, and this is all this opening order, they are accused of idolatry accompanied by further exploitation and injustice. See what he says here in verse 8. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined, right? It's not enough that they're worshiping false gods. They do so with the things they've stolen from the poor and the vulnerable. So they're bringing in their plunder into the house of their God as if this were not enough. Uh, the earth is crying out against this. And then fourth, if their injustice, immorality, and idolatry isn't enough, they've also tried to corrupt those God has called, making the Nazarite drink wine and the prophet, you know, to not prophesy. Essentially, they're muzzling the prophets, right? The one thing Nazarites weren't allowed to do was cut their hair and drink wine. And so they're not just happy to be unjust, immoral, uh, following other gods. They also want to make sure anybody who is trying to follow the living God is also going to be corrupted as well. They're bringing everyone down with them. And so Amos has an oracle for them. Judgment is coming to the house of God. It's going to come to the nations, uh, but it's also coming to the house of God. A couple other selections, just in case you haven't gotten the tone of it yet. Um, flip, if you're following along with me, you're, you're going to get some great stuff here. Chapter 4, Amos calls out the wealthy women of Israel. This is intense, right? Hear this, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, okay? I mean, he's, he's going after it here. Who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring, or bring that we may drink. The Lord has sworn by his holiness that all the days are coming upon you when you shall be taken away with hooks and even the last of you with fish hooks, right? You think, right, that you can exploit the poor. Um, you think you can live a life of self-indulgence, drinking wine to the full and exploit the poor. God is not turning a blind eye to this. And so God calls out the wealthy women of Israel in very striking language. Or if you want to get a little bit of a more vivid vision as it continues to go forward. How about chapter 6, verses 4 through 7? If you want to flip over there and follow along, um, chapter 6, 4 through 6. Again, we're going to get just a picture of life in Israel in the world they're living in. Chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. I love the flipping of pages here. It's so beautiful. People digging into God's word for yourself. 
So encouraging. Every pastor loves that sound of, of pages flipping here. Uh, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oil but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the reverie of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Now, as strange as the language of Amos is to our ears, the situation is actually pretty strikingly similar today, right? We live in one of the most affluent cultures in human history, right? And yet we're still surrounded by poverty and homelessness and you just have to drive right down the street to you know, Boston Square, head down to Division. There's, there's homelessness, there's poverty all around us. There are widows, there are orphans, thousands of kids in the foster care system without homes. Right There are refugees coming by the thousands to Grand Rapids. Um, yeah, but we have that in this most affluent country. There's sexual immorality going on all around us, right? Um, all of the things that we see in Amos' narrative here, they're there. And so as we're looking through this narrative here, and I want to, I've got my notes out of order here too, which is not really helpful for me. <clears throat> Let's see here, what did I do? Interesting, that's, that's great here. I'm missing page four. <laughs> that's great. It's going to be totally fine. Um, but what I wanted to do... That's so funny. Yeah. I'm missing a whole, a whole section of my notes there. I'm, I'm rolling on. I'm, I'm rolling here. What I was going to do here with this is, is, is contrast this to today. So I've got it up on the screen. Hopefully I can read it up there. Uh, but I have, actually, I can't read it up there. Uh, a modern translation for you of Amos 6, 4 through 6. I tried my hand here. I'm not Eugene Peterson, but I tried my hand at a little bit of a paraphrase here to kind of get us into the world of Amos that we're living in. Um, And here's maybe a a modern paraphrase. Woe to those who lie in beds from the pottery barn and uh, lounge on furniture from West Elm. Dine on seafood from Leo's and filet mignon from Ruth Chris Steakhouse. Right, who jam on Fender guitars and mix the latest beats on their turntables, who indulge in craft cocktails and sample the latest edibles, who wear the finest fragrances and yet are unmoved by the stench of homelessness and poverty all around them. Therefore, they will go into exile and their wine and cocktail parties will come to a screeching halt. That is the message that Amos wants to bring to a very wealthy, very affluent society that does not care about the poor at all. And so Israel is going into exile, right? That is the message. God is going to bring judgment against them. They're going to exile for their corruption, uh, for the ways they've exploited uh, the poor. And so you might be wondering here, like, hey, what happened here? You know, what it, I thought God was slow to anger. I thought he was uh, abounding in love. I thought he was full of mercy and grace. Like, boy, we're just turning up the justice here in the book of it. We're getting like angry God, like in this version. We got like merciful God last week in Jonah, and now we're getting exposed to the angry God. But what I want you to see here is that in this text, God is coming to his people because he loves them and he cares about them. I want you to see the rationale for this judgment. If you turn back to chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. 
Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family. So you're flipping along here. I didn't give you a minute to follow along here. This is good. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought about of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. What's going on here? It's saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You are the family that I loved, right? I called out. I called Abraham and said, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. I redeemed you from Egypt. You're my people. Therefore, I'm going to judge you. Therefore, I'm going to bring uh, judgment against you. You see, God's people have this incredible calling. I love how Tim Mackey says it in the Bible. He says, they have this great calling from God. They're God's people, but they also have a great responsibility to be God's priest to the world, to the nations. They're supposed to represent the goodness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the greatness of God. They're there to share that with the nations. They've got a great calling They've got a great responsibility. And when they default on that responsibility, when they go bankrupt on that responsibility, there are great consequences. They're his people and he loves them. So when they get off track, he is committed to getting their attention, right? A lack of judgment would not be love, but neglect. To leave these people who have lost their way would be parental malpractice. Something must be done to get God's people's attention. And Amos It's time for some drastic measures, right? God is going to send his people into exile. And we see a very similar message to us in the New Testament, unless you think, I'm glad God doesn't do this kind of thing to us today, because, boy, wouldn't that be terrifying if God had to discipline us? Uh, But listen to what Hebrews 12, 5 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he received. You see, God loves us too much to withhold discipline from us when we get off track, when our, when our lives become too cluttered with things that are going to harm us, right? When we get stuck in different addictions or patterns, right, that are going to destroy our lives. God brings his discipline, not because he hates us, but because he loves us too much to leave us in our complacency, in our apathy, in our sin. And so sometimes, in the life of grace, it's like Jonah, he brings his extravagant mercy. Other times, man, it's a swift kick in the pants. Like, you need a wake-up call, and God is more than willing and able to bring that wake-up call so that he might get the attention of his people. Have you experienced um, God's loving discipline in your life? Have you experienced moments where you needed a little bit of discipline from your heavenly father, or maybe from your earthly parents, you've experienced you know, that kind of discipline and you've benefited from that. You've valued that in your life, right? Sometimes God needs to get our attention, right? I know as a pastor, there have been times where God's had to get my attention and sit me down and say, Mike, you are out of control right now. There are seasons in my pastoral ministry where I'm like, man, I'd like to know it all. I'm as a pastor, I'd love to be omniscient. That would be a great character. I'd like to be omnipresent. I would like to be there for everybody and in everybody's life. You know, I would like to be all powerful so I could just wave my pastoral wand and fix all of your problems. And unfortunately, those attributes of God are not communicable. God does not share omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence. I'm just another human being like you guys trying to follow Jesus in my life. And sometimes there have been seasons where I went through some really heavy burnout trying to take some of that burden on myself, try to carry things that only Jesus 
can carry. And uh, there was some discipline involved with that. There was some really hard time. I don't know if you can really, I don't know if you've been there in your life, but man, God loves us too much to leave us doing foolish things that are only going to destroy us, that are going to burn us out, uh, carrying burdens way too heavy for us, uh, getting involved in all kinds of things that are just going to wreck our lives. God, God's not going to leave us there. So God's warning of impending justice are always accompanied. This is so crucial throughout uh, the minor prophets. God's warnings, and we saw this last week in Jonah, they're always also accompanied by a call to repentance, right? We saw that last week in Jonah. God's like, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It will be destroyed. It'll be wrecked. But when they humbly confess their sins, where they repent, where they turn to God, God like relents, right? He, he says, you know, it's all right. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to extend my mercy and my grace and my kindness to even these hardened sinners. And so here again in Amos, we're going to see there is also an opportunity for repentance. There's always an opportunity for repentance with God when we get off track, when we get out of the way. That's why we do. Sebastian said a prayer of confession each week, because we do. We get off track. We need to be realigned. We need to be set back in the direction where God has for us. So point two, we're going to look at the call to repentance. This call is twofold. First, there's a vertical dimension of this call. And second, there is a horizontal dimension to this call. So flip over with me, would you, with Amos 5, 4 through 7. Amos 5, 4 through 7. This is beautiful here. Amos 5, 4 through 7. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not go into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go in exile. Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devoureth none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn injustice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. You see, Amos is saying, if you seek me, the invitation to life is always there. It's the same message we hear back in Deuteronomy. Seek me and live. Do this and you will live. Right? They are they have walked away from God, the northern kingdom, just a historical tidbit, right? They, not only did they break away, they created their own religious centers with their own idols, with their own worship sites, with their own temples. Uh, they've added all this whole pantheon of gods. And, and Amos is saying, look, if you turn away from the idols that you worship and love and seek the Lord, there is an opportunity for redemption and restoration, right? There's always that opportunity vertically uh, to turn to God and receive the pardon that we need. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, said it this way in his 95 Theses. Uh, I found this to be so helpful in our own lives. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And we think, man, being repentant is like getting called to the principal's office. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to repent. I don't want to be. And yet, in our Christian life, uh, knowing our hearts prone to wander as they are, we're, we're constantly needing to repent. And repentance simply in the Old Testament, it just means to turn. So if you were walking one way and you're walking on this path of destruction, repentance is just, you just got to turn around, turn back to God, get back on track with what he's doing with his kingdom, his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, right? All the other things are going to follow. We have this invitation here to turn to God and receive um, the forgiveness that he offers, right? That's always available to us today, but there's also a horizontal aspect to repentance, 
which involves reflecting God's character to the people around us. And that's what Amos is primarily concerned with. The whole book is about, you know, you guys can pay lip service to me with your mouth that you love me, that you're turning to me, that you're following me. Man, but what Amos wants to see is actual repentance that's walked out in the, on the block, in the everyday stuff of life, in the ways you conduct yourself, in the ways you deal with other people. Notice just a few verses down in verse, Amos 5, 14 through 15. He says, seek me and live. Seek me and live. Then in verse 14, he says, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord of hosts will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Isn't that beautiful? He's like, yeah, you you need to seek me with all your heart, right? Because I am your true north. You want to know what justice is, right? You've got to come to me. But if that justice then doesn't actually work itself out in the rest of your life, if if justice isn't happening at the city gate, right? Your, Your justice is pretty is pretty fake. It's just a sham. And the city gate, of course, in the Old Testament was not just a place where people you know, walked in and out. That's where business was conducted. That's where court cases were adjudicated. It was kind of a city hall of the ancient Near East. The city gate was where the elders would sit and pronounce judgment. And so Amos is saying it's not enough, right, that you can come into the temple and confess your sins and give a sacrifice if your lives don't actually reflect justice at the city gate, everything else you do, it's all a show. It's all a sham. Good for you, showing up, looking great, getting all spruced up for Sunday morning and, and arriving. But, but if justice doesn't actually happen out there in the world, it's all for nothing. Um, we have also a word in our vocabulary, I think we're familiar with, right? for people who seek God, uh, but live in ways diametrically opposed to his character. What, what word might come to mind <laughs> when you think about that? A hypocrite, right? And, and unfortunately, sadly, the church, that's one of the words often associated with the church in our contemporary culture today. Uh, a bunch of hypocrites, right? Uh, God hates hypocrisy and shows Amos just how much. Uh, read along here in 21 through 24. I mean, these are just... Just this God just speaking to his people and just leveling with them. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen." But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what God wants, right? Not just this pretense, not just some great singing on Sunday mornings. He wants an equal passion for justice in our lives. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this uh, text here. This time I'll let him do the paraphrasing here. Uh, but he says, he paraphrases 21 to 21st this way, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public slogans and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want, and that's all I want. The problem was that all the motions of religion in their temples had no effect on the way they lived their lives. Instead of lip service, God wants justice to roll down 
like rivers, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Their worship must result in concrete acts of righteousness and justice. And these two words, righteousness and justice, come up over and over again in the Minor Prophets. 36 times they're paired together uh, for what it looks like to follow God out in the public square. When I say public square, I mean out in public, not just in our little church lives, but out there in actually the careers that we work in our neighborhoods, in our city here. And I want to give you two definitions because these words are going to come up over and over again. Two short definitions from Tim Mackey that hopefully get a grasp on what righteousness and justice means. First, righteousness, sadaqah, refers to a standard of right and equitable relationships between people regardless of their social differences, right? So we're not treating people differently because of their socioeconomic place in the world. We're not giving people preferential treatment because they're rich and they're influenced and they can, they can make doors open for us, right? We treat everybody the same. We give everyone the same standard of justice and equity in the world. We're, we're, we're building relationships where everybody matters, right? Everybody made in the image of God is, has dignity, respect, and we want to honor that. We want to provide for that. Second, justice, mishpat, refers to concrete actions taken to correct injustice and create righteousness, right? Justice is crucial in the minor prophets. Obviously, for Amos, it is massive, and it's not just correcting wrongdoing, right? That's what we think of. We have a criminal justice system that's supposed to punish wrongdoers, but it's also there to help create situations and contexts where righteousness can flourish, where people that are marginalized, where people that don't have the assets and resources we have can also grow and flourish. That creates on-ramps for other people to be a part of this flourishing society, the wealthiest society in the world that we live in, right? Together, these two words capture the life that God wants for his people. They demand every person, right? Be respected as an image bearer and demands concrete actions to correct injustice, create conditions for human flourishing wherever it is in our power to do so. A passion for justice and righteousness emerges out of our understanding of the character of God and manifests itself concretely in our public lives. And uh, it's worth probably noting, and I wish I had more time to unpack all this. You should see all the notes that I have on my desk this week, reading through all of Amos and trying to just put it all together into a beautiful little package and tie a bow on it for you all. Uh, but in the vacuum left by Judeo-Christian ideas of justice and morality, there have been many theories of justice that have been formulated to take its place. And I don't have time to mention all of them. Obviously, there are attempts to kind of build morality around atheist, more of an evolutionary or materialistic standpoint where, where people are trying to go, yeah, because of our herd survival instincts, like we should probably take care of people, right? There have been all these critical theories that have been uh, you know, built to kind of help establish justice based on people's social location. And, uh, and there are just big ideas like maybe we could just build you know, morality around equality or freedom. But those words, right, are so elastic, right? What does freedom mean to you? What does equality mean to you? And, and the left and the right all uh, kind of kick these concepts around. And, and we're struggling, right, as a culture to be even, not only do we have a shared bigger narrative about who we are and who God is and the world is, but we really struggle around what is morality. Even the definition of morality in our culture, justice is deeply deeply contested. Read any ethics professor who's trying to wrestle with the realities of this today. You're going to see a situation where we really just can't even agree basically what justice even 
looks like. And we could bemoan the loss of our shared Judeo-Christian values or go on the offensive and try to take down uh, the alternatives. But this broader cultural confusion, I think, presents a wonderful opportunity to rearticulate all the riches about what the Bible has to say about justice. And the minor prophets are full of beautiful picture of what justice actually looks like uh, flowing out of the heart of God, what justice and righteousness looks like. And the primary contribution of the Bible to modern conversation about justice, I think, is grounding it not in the changing mores of the time, but in the unchanging character of God, right? That is where we're going to. That's what we're returning to. When we think about justice, we're thinking about righteousness. We are returning to who is God? What is he like? How does he define justice and righteousness? He's the one that made us, right? So he has the opportunity to define what it looks like to live in ways that are right with him and right with our fellow neighbors, how to conduct justice in the world. And we have a beautiful opportunity, I think, to re-articulate that. Well, biblical justice and morality has always been strange to the cultures in which it has come in contact with, it has made massive contributions to understanding of justice and human rights that even the most secular people have to acknowledge today as they're looking back at the world. Where do we come up with this idea that every human being has value, dignity, and worth? Where, where does this whole modern conception of human rights come from? It emerges right out of this Christian, Judeo-Christian uh, ethic that the minor prophets are trumpeting as loud as they can in an ancient Near Eastern culture full of injustice. And as we look at a world today that's really grappling, trying to understand how do we be just, we have some beautiful resources to offer to the conversation that's going on out there beyond the walls of this church. And so I really do have to land the plane here, man. So we've looked at the warning of impending judgment. We looked at the call to repentance. And finally, at the very end of the book, we see just a glimpse of hope on the far side of judgment. And this is at the end of the book, if you flip all the way over to chapter 9, just the last uh, five verses, we get this little glimpse of hope that hopes take some of the, the sting away, right, from the, the impending judgment that's coming and the wrath of God that fills so many of these pages uh, Amos ends with some hope, right? He, he wants us to end on a note of hope. He doesn't want us to despair at the injustice we see around us, at the injustice we see in our own hearts. Um, he wants us to look forward to a beautiful hope that we have. So let's read um, Amos 9, 11 through 15. In, the day, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of gapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So, so what is this fallen shelter of David that's going to be restored? God has already promised David an everlasting dynasty, 2 Samuel seven thirteen, Psalm 89, Psalm 132. But by this time, Amos has already told us that southern kingdom of Judah, the direct descendants of David, have already forsaken the law, and that judgment is imminent not just for the northern kingdom, but also for the southern kingdom. 
And we know with the benefit of hindsight that both Israel and Judah do go into exile for their sins. They don't repent. They don't follow God. God sends them into exile to finally get their attention. So Amos is pointing to hope beyond the judgment of both Israel and Judah when God will restore the fallen shelter of David and reunite the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah and even include the nations, the Gentiles, into the people of God. And so when will this event happen? Well, where Israel failed to be the people of justice and righteousness God called them to be, all the prophets were looking forward to a time when David's descendant, when the Messiah would come and finally set everything right. So in Isaiah 42, another prophet to Israel um, says this in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlines wait for his law. Isaiah 61 fills in this vision even more with beautiful vision, vivid details of what this looks like. And then in verse 11, it closes in these words, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. God's people were longing for that day, but it wouldn't be until Jesus' birth that those promises would begin to see their fulfillment. The Messiah's reign would be characterized by justice and righteousness. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus' life exemplified and embodied a life committed to justice and righteousness, right? He was there amongst the poor, the excluded, the marginalized. He was a friend of sinners. That's who he was. And he was so committed to justice and righteousness that he went to the cross for all the ways we've failed to practice God's justice and righteousness. In the great exchange, we get his righteousness and he gets our punishment so that God can be perfectly just and so that we can receive the mercy that we so desperately need. But that's not the end of the story, right? In his resurrection, he gathers the true people of God and consecrates them to be conformed more and more to his image, to be people of justice and righteousness in the public square. In Acts 15, when the church is trying to figure out how to welcome Gentiles into the church, right? How to spread God's justice beyond the ethnic people of God, the Apostle James quotes this passage in a slightly different translation from the Septuagint in Acts 9. 11 through 12, to confirm the inclusion of Gentiles in the church. Uh, Acts 15 says this, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree. Just as it is written, after this I will come, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild his ruin and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Uh, commentator Daryl Baca, I love how he says, he said, the goal of this rebuilding work is to allow the rest of humanity, not just Jews, but Gentiles, to seek after God. Clearly, the apostles recognized the beginning of the fulfillment of Amos' prophecy in Jesus' ascension to the throne of David, but the final fulfillment of this prophecy still waits the day when God's kingdom will come in all of its fullness and usher in the blessings 
of verses 11 through 13 where mountains are dripping with sweet wine and all creation is fully uh, restored and healed to the design that God has for it. So what would it look like to have Amos' passion for justice and righteousness burning in our hearts this week? Uh, First, Amos wants to highlight the disconnect between what we say on Sunday and our behavior all week long, right? Are we hypocrites more concerned with our own comfort than the people living around us, uh, suffering, just living right above economic survival? Amos wants to call that out. So do we have a concern for those that haven't made it, that haven't arrived in the world? Uh, do we have a passion to see them flourish and prosper? Second, Amos wants, to, wants us to consider whether our Sunday zeal for worship matches right, our Monday through Friday passion for justice and righteousness out in the public square. Do we, do we care what God cares about? Do we care about justice and righteousness? That's something that burns in our hearts, right? We're famous for our passion for grace, God's grace and his, his mercy and his salvation. You know, do, we, do we share God's passion for justice and righteousness? Is this something that distinguishes us from the community around us? Do we have something to say as Christians about justice and mercy? Or is that just something we conveniently ignore because we have comfortable middle-class lives. Finally, Amos points us to the Messiah as our ultimate hope for a more just and righteous society. He's our standard of justice. He's the one who strengthens us in the demanding work of doing justice. And he's the one who will ultimately let justice flow down like waters and righteousness like a flowing stream in his eternal Kingdom. So we root our hope, right, not in economic systems or political systems, but in King Jesus and his kingdom, the righteousness and justice that he's going to bring at the end of the day. We are putting all of our hope in Jesus. And I want to close uh, just as, our, as we're my third closing or fourth closing, I don't know, my pastoral closing. I've had lots to say with a final illustration here. Um, probably the most famous uh, ever um, use of these words from Amos and burned into our cultural consciousness is Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, where he conjures up these words to tackle a very real, very imminent evil in culture, right? People that had been for, you know, 100 years, they had been emancipated, but 100 years later, as he's standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, still seeing vast injustice happening in the world around him. People, right, made in the image of God, you know, being subjected to radically different standards than the white majority culture. And, and he had some things to say. He had some powerful, passionate words to say about that, to challenge that American culture a generation ago, that we were ignoring justice. We were ignoring the demands for justice. And so as we think about the situation, the world we live in, right, would we be accused like our white contemporaries a generation ago, of totally missing the opportunity to join God in his call for justice. Hear these words from Martin Luther King's speech there in 1964, I think it was. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the motels or the hotels of the city. 
We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes that he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Right? That message, man, which resounded with a generation and dismantled a lot of injustice in our culture is a message I think we need to, we need to heed today. Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, I quoted Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr. in the same sermon here. Got to keep them straight. Knew that only an appeal to the ultimate moral high ground, God's justice, could roll back hundreds of years of slavery and oppression. And that fight continues today, along with many others. Justice for those that are trapped in sex trafficking, for the widow, the orphan, the refugee, right? There are many ways that we can join in this work, but we can't be faithful to God and his justice and his righteousness if we don't live that out in our, in our church today. And so my prayer, my hope is that we would be a church, right, that takes seriously this call to God's righteousness, that we wouldn't simply pick and choose the attributes of God that we like, his mercy, his grace, uh, but that we'd also be a church that exemplifies the beauty of his justice and his righteousness to a culture that really desperately needs it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for Amos and its message. Uh, Hard-hitting as it is, God, we know sometimes we need to be called to repentance. We need uh, to be called to look at the world around us, the suffering, the hurting, uh, those that have less resources than we have. Um, God, and the opportunities we as a church have to seek justice justice, uh, for the oppressed, uh, to be people of righteousness, holding out, the hope of the gospel, but also uh, the simple, practical, material care that everyone around us, that so many around us need, God. So make us a people that, that burn, God, both with your passion for mercy and grace, but also uh, that our, our light would burn bright for justice and righteousness out in the public square. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So each week here at Redemption